0: On this episode of The Raise Podcast, I sit down with Kyle Vaughn, the Assistant Director of Athletic Fundraising at Ashland. Kyle was an ever true 40 under 40 winner and he was voted MVP of our Raise Conference in 2019. Kyle shares his perspective on building a community around athletics and how he uses social media engagement and a giving funnel approach to really fuel his donor pipeline. Kyle is an optimistic and enthusiastic guy and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here we go. Welcome Rays listeners. Today it's my pleasure to host Kyle Vaughn, the Associate Director of Athletics Development at Ashland University on our show. Welcome, Kyle.
1: Thanks, uh, glad to be here.
0: So Kyle, uh, we really got connected in person at this summer's RAISE conference. You were a 40 under 40 uh, recipient at Evertrue. And uh, I-, I just remember you being front row in the middle of the entire conference and i'd love to kind of get your perspective on just that experience what what the conference was like and and then we'll get into uh your background and how you ended up on the show today
1: well i i love going to conferences because it's a great opportunity to hear what others are doing and i like the raise conference in particular as you bring people that are not in our profession they come up and talk so love love pop all those things and they, what they do, we can implement in what we do. Uh, and so just hearing their stories and whatnot was a lot of fun, but I'm big on you should break out from your group. So if you go there with a bunch of colleagues, I don't hang out with my colleagues. I was the only one from Ashland, so it wasn't hard, but uh, we get to see each other all the time, uh, but go and hang out with people and talk about their shops Hear what's going on there. Here's some of the struggles, here's some of the same struggles, some of the same things that. They're trying to accomplish and come back with great ideas. In addition to that, I was in admissions for a little bit, and always the front row was open, and those later arrivals, they were always really embarrassed because there's nowhere to sit, and I would just grab them and say, hey, 4.0, sit up front, and we'd walk up front.
0: 4.0, sit up front. There we go. Um... <laughs> and
1: my, moms and dads always liked that a lot, and so we had a lot of fun, and uh, that's just kind of how I am, uh, just outgoing, and I want to take everything in that I can.
0: Well, it's a, good, it's a good segue into a little bit of your background. So you're at Ashland University in Ohio. You are uh, either the sole or one of a, a small group focused on athletics fundraising. Yep. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Ashland, the current uh, sort of team structure, and then walk us through your journey because you've had a really good run at Ashland with good um, sort of shifts around campus. Yeah. but but you've landed in a, in a really good spot and I have no doubt great things will continue, but why don't you walk us a little bit through that journey and I noticed um, as well that when you graduated college, it was sort of in the middle or, or just around the financial crisis and you spent some time in the financial services world <laughs> um, and so I'm just kind of curious to, to get your perspective on what it was like working in, in that industry, um, which in many regards might be almost the polar opposite of, of, of higher education.
1: Well, so um, you always have mentors along the way in your life. And one of my closest mentors actually was never a professor. She's someone I worked for as a student here. Uh, She was the director of institutional research. Um, Karen Little, she is maybe five foot, but you would never want to cross her. She is fierce, and she always called it like it was. So she was an extremely important person to me as an undergrad. Uh, like you said, I went into financial advising, but I was still in the community. So I had the opportunity to go and uh, maybe vent my frustrations about the profession. I, I just didn't really enjoy the pressure of trying to overcome objections. Uh, my philosophy was I'm sitting in front of someone and I'm talking about opportunities to invest your money, ways to prepare for retirement, help, someone, help your kids go to college, whatever it was. But at the end of the day it was their choice and so when you get calls and say hey we got to overcome that objection we got to get the sale well to me i'm like you know what this is the long game and maybe it will come because eh, they feel more comfortable with me they don't feel pushed whatever it was well that's never good enough but one day karen just comes pounding on my door and says i know you're not liking it if you want to get the job at au i can get you an interview from there it's on you and so i was able to start in the registrar's office If there's a place to start in higher ed, it's there because every phone call seems to go through there
0: and you learn everything about the university. Tell me more about that. I can tell you I haven't spent much time in the registrar's office since probably final semester of of college. So what's going on?
1: You you can be hated there because, oh, I want to register for classes. Oh, you can't because of X, Y, and Z. And so there's that. I need a transcript. Oh, you can't get one because of X, Y, and Z. There was always maybe an issue that you had to like take care of with that person first. So when I was a student here, maybe it wasn't the greatest place to go to because there were a lot low morale maybe or just kind of sick of always having to deal with complaints, but I just tried to approach it in a different way. Had a lot of fun in there. We had a crazy group. I sh- I'll share this story. Um, I'd always play music and you'd have to g-chat your requests to me and I would just kind of blare it and Someone goes, you won't answer the phone next time in your DJ voice. And, oh, I did. And we took a request. Uh, I wish I could remember the song, but, you know, the phone rings. And I'm like, coming to you live from Ashton University. And then this, the other side of the phone, just she just cracked up. And she goes, I just want a transcript. And we had a great laugh. And I just think about what I'm doing now. That alum had a great, a fun experience with her university. Um, we got her transcript ordered. We got everything taken care of. But – that we try to change the attitude in that office. I did a lot with transfers and that's what led me to admissions. And i handled all of our transfer recruitment for two years. And so no better person to talk about how your transfers credit than the guy that was awarding the credit after talking to faculty and staff. So I was able to really transition easily into that role. If I had a class coming in, I didn't know how it would transfer. I knew the professor to call say, hey, this person took this class at whatever college. Would you accept it here like this to try to help those students out?
0: So tell me a little bit about the transfer recruitment process, because I feel like that's one kind of subcategory of the enrollment space I have not had much exposure to. How much yeah. of that is fielding inbound requests, somebody writing in or applying, saying I want to transfer versus more of an outbound kind of aggressive recruitment strategy that I, that I think most general enrollment has to embark upon? I would say more
1: of it's them expressing interest, but there are transfer what they call fairs. There are two year schools um, that put on fairs where four year schools come and say, hey, why don't you come here and finish? And in some cases you have what's called an articulation agreement, meaning if you go here two years, you leave with an associate's degree in this, and then you can transfer to AU or whatever school it may be that you have that agreement you take these classes, then you have your four year degree. And so there's some of that that's going on. Um, if you stayed in that role long term, you probably were looking at other two years and how to make that transition happen easily because then you're ultimately the, the no brainer. If I go here, I want to finish at AU because I know it works. Um, but that's not, man, life, transfer students, a lot of times something's gotten in the way or you gotta be nimble, you gotta be able to figure out problems for them. So the biggest question they have is how long it's going to take me to finish. And so the one thing that I usually could do is say, here's your roadmap. Unfortunately, it's going to take you two and a half years or here, you can get it done in two years. But if you couldn't answer that question, boy, why would they ever recruit here or come here? Because they don't know how long it's going to take to finish. That's, that's terrifying. And so I did go to transfer f- fairs. I didn't realize I was breaking a rule. You're not allowed to stand in front of the table. Like, I would come around the side, and I just interact with people. And the lady came up that was running and goes, you have to sleep behind your table. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, yeah, you can't be out. And I was like, oh. So, learn some things there. It was kind of interesting. But you just, hey, did you, a lot of times, just explain what Ashland is, what we're doing. Um, oh, you're in this. Here's a great transition for you to come here to get your fourth degree, which is ultimately what those people wanted.
0: I mean, one of the things I, I haven't spent a lot of time around the enrollment space, but one of the things I really like about that dynamic is just how aggressive the timeline is. You know, yeah. you only have a certain window for that transfer student who's thinking about making a decision and you've got to move fast or you're going to lose out to somebody else. And I think even with the typical you know, undergraduate enrollment cycle, you experience the same thing. Whereas I think one of the things that can be a bit of a challenge at times in the advancement space is because we are playing the long game and because we have 30, 40, 50 years to Mm -hmm. ultimately really um, um, build a relationship that that hopefully um, has philanthropic uh, benefits uh, to both sides, there isn't always that same sense of urgency that you feel in the enrollment Uh, world. So I'm curious to kind of get your perspective on that transition. Obviously the annual fund has, you know, an annual calendar cycle similar to the enrollment calendar. Um, But, but from a major gifts perspective, obviously it can be uh, much more in that lifelong relationship pace.
1: Yeah. I, you know, actually kind of something I was thinking, right. Was we were, as I was talking and you were asking your, your question is understanding our alumni better uh, Lynn Wester presented at the conference and she said something about we we're all care about all this generational stuff. But the problem is we're making assumptions on where people are in their lives. And I think that can apply to two of these transfer students are probably at different points in their life. They're a different alum. Sometimes they don't even live on campus. So like knowing that group of people, because our annual appeals might need to be different, targeted and segmented differently based on some even that aspect of that. In terms of the change,
0: yeah. Well, what led to, I mean, first of all, for you, you're you're, you're in the reg- registrar's office. You become a bit of a specialist around the transfer uh, mm-hmm. student requests. And then you uh, make the move into transfer student recruitment, admission, right. and then eventually make the move into the advancement shop. Had you had any interaction with that? group in advance? or what was the catalyst to even explore something around campus like that?
1: Well, sort of just, um, so Margaret Pomfret's our VP and i had had a few conversations with her prior about kind of career. Um, and so the funniest thing is I work, the of working at your alma mater is they remember what you did when you're a student and I used to do the shot clock. Well, I essentially do the clock for almost every one of our home basketball games. Um, and so I was at a basketball game, and at the time, Fred Finks, the president, he goes, hey, there's an annual giving position. I think you'd be great for it. And I was like, huh, never really thought of that. So had a conversation with Margaret and then kind of learned what this job is. I'll tell you right now, you don't really graduate going, I'm going to be a fundraiser. I never crossed my mind. But, man, did a lot of it appeal to me, um, tracking, like having good data, uh, segmenting it correctly, having a good message, um, consistent message, and treating, getting people, uh, I guess, communicating with them the right way in the right phases of their lives. And that's still a struggle. It always will be a struggle. Um, but at least I'm conscious of it. And I'm able to use that. I credit a lot of that to my my business degree from here. Took a lot of classes on analytics through my economics. And that's important to me. So like I have an Excel sheet tracking exactly how every one of my direct mails do. How are my emails performing? Those things matter because I need to look at it and prepare for next year. And so I don't know exactly why Fred thought I was a good choice, but it led to a conversation with Margaret which ultimately led to me applying and then getting that. Two years of annual giving is, was fantastic. Um, had huge successes, had a great coworker that um, we were able to hire on, Amanda, Amanda Midas, who now runs it. We, we were able to change a lot of things. And then that's ultimately, I think, what's helped me get to where I'm at, because I'm running comprehensively athletics giving. So my annual giving strategy stuff is important, but also now I'm doing major gift work.
0: So tell me a little bit about just why you feel... Uh, you and Amanda were so successful, whether it was uh, just strategic changes or actual results that were generated, because I think in general, it's been a difficult time for annual giving when you look at the industry stats around participation and donor count. Um, did you buck those trends? Are you bucking those trends? I mean, what what were some of the, the big moves you made that maybe would be um, replicable to some of our other listeners, perhaps? Uh, consistency. So when... Do you solicit? We
1: operated on, hey, this is our quarter one. Let's do our quarter one mailer. Now this is our quarter two mailer, so on and so forth. Well, one of the biggest things we implemented was a, um, it was actually an anniversary card solicitation. So you made your gift in the month of January. You're getting solicited in the month of January. You're also being reminded what you gave to, how much you gave, um, and say, and we invite you to continue this and the response rate was over, hovered around 30%, and average gift size was always moving up because we kind of asked for an upgrade. But I think that that was one of the best strategies we implemented. We had that consistent, we were, we were operating on their timeline. We weren't assuming, hey, they wanna give because our fiscal year ends on this date or whatever it may be. Of course, we still had the traditional, hey, we gonna still send something out at this time, this time, and this time, but we also did some A-B testing. We learned a lot about ourselves. Direct
0: mail is not a place to try to acquire donors. Stuff like that. It's a waste of money. Why do you say that? How do you know? Because I you feel like there are a lot of people listening right now still trying to use direct mail to acquire donors.
1: Well, I just stats just didn't lie. We send something to someone who was a non-donor or a sidebunt and the direct mail did not perform.
0: In some cases,
1: some segments would be zero
0: responses I mean, what's an example you, you send out 500 letters get zero or more
1: yeah something like that I, I would i should pull those up i probably have the old things to look but the uh we had segments that were essentially we knew they were non-donors that were, were zero responses and then but if we had someone who was 25 consecutive year donor you're up in the 60s, 70s and then so and of course you assume that's right but now we have data that proves that's right and so that's why our day of giving has come into play. That's where we acquire donors. It's just the place that we do it because we create an event around it, we create a lot of excitement around it, we make it competitive, um, and that's where we get all of our new donors. It's, that's the place that we have our donor count rise, uh, 700 plus donors last year at day of giving in 24 hours. But that's a, lot, a testament to the annual giving team and Amanda's team, we partner with the uh, College of Business and our PR. So we have a lot of student involvement. And for the first time ever, we have our senior class going, we want to give, here's how we want to do it. And here's how we want to help raise money. And that's a different trend that we didn't have in the past. So that, that's how we kind of did it. But we had data to tell us this is a bad way to go.
0: And so you had this strong success uh, have have partnered with Amanda she's now leading the effort around annual giving yep what was uh what led you to take the role in athletics and what was it like going from kind of one really specific focus area in a broader effort to more of a comprehensive approach as a team of one well yeah so have
1: my advancement friends across the street now so the our structure is this i I'm a development employee. I'm a report on our advancement side. However, I sit within athletics. So it's a little different because you feel like you're a part of two teams. Uh, obviously I see my athletic team's mates a lot more now because I'm sitting over here. You know, I try to make a trip across, go around and see people. Um, I mean, they're my friends. I love to hear what they're doing. Uh, so there's that dynamic going on. The reason why though, my wife played volleyball for four years here. I played soccer. We still followed all the athletics. I was at every basketball game doing the clock. And when this position became something they were going to uh, create, I was like, yes, that is for me. Uh, it gets, it allows me to do a lot of things I love. I I did sit in our advancement services chair for a little bit. Um, I do like Excel. I am a big numbers guy. So I did a lot of stuff with our database, but this position, which to me, was a no-brainer. Allow me to do a little bit of that, but also now I'm going out seeing people talking about AU athletics. Our, our athletics are incredible. Um, Top-ranked top teams, uh, national championship contenders. I mean, it's easy to sell that stuff. Uh, I talk to coaches all the time. Don't tell me what you need. Tell me where you're going. I say it all the time. I say, we know you need things. Don't tell me what you need. Tell me where this program is going to go. If half of your alumni base gives $10 a month, they can give, if they can commit Netflix to you, they can say, you you're as important as Netflix to us. And that's $12,000 for certain teams. Like I've done the math. I'm like, because they don't get it. But I'm just like, if you had half of your alumni base give $10 a month, that's $12,000. What would you do?
0: So I'm sure uh, you hear a lot. From the coaches on what they need or you wouldn't you wouldn't respond that way and it's it's timely as i was down uh at brown university on saturday which is my alma mater and i've taken over as vice president of fundraising uh for the football association so volunteer capacity but collaborating closely with our sports foundation and and we've got a new young coach there james perry who i think has done a really good job of painting the picture for where we're where we're going um And then framing what we need through the lens of where we're going. Right. It's not about, you know, better nutrition for the sake of uh, just addressing that this this semester. It's about uh, building a championship program and so forth. So I guess you've probably heard many iterations of uh, responses to the tell me where you're going. And I'm curious Mm -hmm. from your perspective, what what the coaches say that is more compelling versus less compelling. Do any coaches stand out as being really good partners at being able to help you articulate that vision when you ask where you're going? Because if they can't share that with you, how are you supposed to translate, rate, translate that to a donor?
1: 100%. Uh, I have two really good examples. Judd Logan, he's our track and field coach. He's been here for 20-plus years. Uh, they won the indoor and outdoor national championship last year on the men's side. And when you talk about where his program is going, he, it's ultimately that. We're going to win championships, and that's what has been his goal from day one, and he's good at selling that vision to his athletes and what that commitment needs to be to get there. And so when you talk about talking to a donor, you talk about Judd Logan, nine times out of ten they know him because he was our throws coach. Uh, he's an intense individual. He actually just battled cancer. And just, there's some great stories out there about him, but, you know, he shared, like, my to- I told my doctor, I'm going to do whatever you tell me, I'm going to do more because I'm going to beat this. I'm going to treat this just like I'd make my athletes treat being an athlete. You talk about a guy that can sell something, it's him. And then our women's basketball program is, is wildly successful. Uh, national championships, uh, they're top seven. They're number seven in the country right now. And we're, we have a second-year coach, but she's been in the program. She actually won the first title ever as a player for the program. And she set on as an assistant coach, and now she's the head coach. And last year, she said something that was really great. She goes, I'm not Coach Ramsey, who was the coach that coached her, and I'm not Robin Fralick, the coach that took over for her. I'm me. I'm Carrie, and this is what my team's going to be. You know, we're going to rebound relentlessly. We're going to do these things. And I go, that's what you need to tell your teams. And because if we do those things, we're gonna win national championships. And again, ultimately, when you talk to these coaches, it's about that getting there, getting to that stage. Um, And there's teams that are good that don't talk about what they need. They talk about what their program is, the type of athletes they're going to recruit. Um, Those are where donors have a much easier